If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We'll continue to look at what we began last Lord's Day and the responsibility of strong and weak Christians to learn how to mutually get along with one another in the church. We've been looking together at Romans 14 and 15, and we've been challenged to study and apply the Scriptures in an attempt to grasp what it means to have unity, liberty, and maturity among ourselves as fellow believers, especially with areas that are not black or white but are gray. Last time we began a study of Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, which says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember last time I gave you three outline points on chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, and we looked at the first one and a little bit of the second one. You remember the first one? I called it the principle of pleasure from Romans 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul teaches us there that if people in the church are unable to participate in certain matters, that would be the weak because their conscience is pricking them about such things, Paul calls those matters opinions. You can see it in Romans 14, 1. And he says we ought not to argue over them because opinions are neither right or wrong. And that's why we call them opinions. They're gray. And in the fellowship of the body of Christ, in a local church setting, there are going to be a combination of strong and weak believers. And in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says that the strong believers have an obligation not to be selfish in pursuing their own opinions and by doing so offend the weak. Rather, he says, we should sense that obligation, and he actually uses that word, an obligation to bear with the weak, although, yes, he does call the weak's position failings, the failings of the weak, and we should not simply attempt as the strong to please ourselves, but to do whatever we can to please them. And I've chosen to call this the principle of pleasure. Not yours, 
but your desire to do everything you can to bring pleasure to those who are weaker than yourself. The principle of pleasure, then, is when given a choice between pleasing myself in some area that the Bible doesn't specifically address and giving up that pleasure so as not to injure my fellow Christian brother or sister and their weak conscience in some gray area, I would choose not to please myself and would therefore give up my liberties to do certain things, whatever they may be. According to Romans 15.2, you could also call this the principle of edification, the principle of building up one another. Notice what he says there in chapter 15, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's my ultimate goal in these relationships. I will not pursue the carrying out of my own pleasure, whatever it may be, and even if I'm totally free in Scripture to do it, if it conflicts with those weaker brethren around me whose consciences are pricked when they see me doing it. I'm therefore desirous of pleasing them and not myself And I'm to do so because I want to bring about good in their life. I want to build them up in their faith. That's the principle of edification. And then secondly, last time we began that second outline point called the pleasure of Christ. The principle of pleasure or the principle of edification. And then secondly, in verses 3 and 4, we began to look at the pleasure of Christ. Who did I say Paul used as the supreme example of this principle of edification? Well, of course, it's none other than Christ, the Lord Jesus Himself. And underneath that second outline point, Paul says, verse 3, For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, referring to the Father, fell on me, referring to Christ you remember from last time, I said that Jesus, as the second member of the Godhead, the Trinity, left the glories and the perfections of heaven, not seeing those as so compelling that He wouldn't fulfill the Father's will and plan, and that was to leave the abode of heaven and come to earth, a wicked earth, sinful earth, and to be incarnated And as we celebrate that in the Christmas season, we focus upon that truth, the incarnation of Christ coming to this earth in the form, of course, initially as a babe in the manger who would grow up through his boyhood and his manhood through the perfections of his life to be God's chosen sin bearer. And when he went to that cross and when he died there, there was an exclamation point that was that was put on his life and was stamped with his sacrificial death that he, Christ, as a commitment of his life in obedience to God the Father to fulfill his Father's will, would not, simply would not endeavor to please himself. But as Paul says here, a perfect example of someone who always endeavored to please his neighbor. And who was his neighbor in this case? all of those who would ever believe. He died for us, pleasing not Himself, but the Father, 
and of course ultimately pleasing us because we were saved, we were redeemed, we were delivered from our sin. What an example, what a marvelous example. Read verse 3 again. For Christ did not please Himself. Let those words sink in. Think about that the next time you're challenged, even in a gray area, to do something that you know a nearby brother or sister would have great difficulty with, would struggle with, even if the Scripture doesn't commend you to it or condemn you by it, you don't want to please yourself. Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who wanted to reproach the Father, Christ took upon Himself. Of course, quoting Psalm 69, verse 9, the latter part. Christ saw His life as a way for the reproaches that were intended for the Father to fall rather on Himself. And it pleased Him to go to that cross and to die that death because He wasn't into, as we would say, pleasing Himself. What an exemplar. What an example. What a testimony. Talk about desiring to please your neighbor instead of yourself. He died for his neighbors. Think about that the next time a neighbor wants to do something or wants to refrain from something. And in the body of Christ, you say to yourself, but I don't care about them. I want to do my own thing. It's not forbidden in Scripture. The Lord didn't say, I couldn't do it. Oh, yes, He may not have commended me for doing it, but since it's not forbidden in Scripture, I can do that. I can participate in that. It's a gray area. Christ did not endeavor to please Himself, but to please His neighbor. He voluntarily took upon Himself reproaches that were intended for someone else, and He did so precisely because He wanted to please not Himself but us and His heavenly Father. And when you and I are faced with a decision either to pursue our own pleasure, even if it's perfectly acceptable to do so, and Scripture doesn't forbid it, or to tenderly come alongside our fellow brother or sister in Christ who is weak and who has failings and at that point cannot see clearly to doing certain things that we have no problem with in doing, we should rather lay aside our preferences for their sake and to choose rather to build them up in their faith. That is what Paul is teaching these Roman believers. And that's what we're to be taught as well. It was the very pleasure of Christ and it must be our pleasure also. Now, having said that, taught that to you last time, We could, as we move along to verse 4, talk about an an interlude with Paul. Uh, A little bit of a parenthetical statement, because notice what he says in verse 4. For, which means, by the way, that little word for, that connector word, links us right back to verse 3, and that's why it's in the same 
outline point, the pleasure of Christ. Christ didn't please Himself, but He took on those reproaches of the Father for whatever was written, and what was written in this context was Psalm 69, 9b, that has just been quoted by Paul in reference to Christ, with Christ being the ultimate fulfillment of that verse, Psalm 69, 9, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Whose instruction? Our instruction. Believers. New Covenant believers. New Testament Christians. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You say, now what does that have to do with these verses? Well, in one sense it doesn't have anything to do with them, and in one sense it has everything to do with it. He might have, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chosen not to include verse 4, and the context wouldn't have been broken up, wouldn't have been disjointed, and if, as he did, choose to keep it here, it doesn't create any disjoining, even though it is there, and even though it is a little bit of an interlude, what he's really saying is this, when Christ was the fulfillment of Psalm 69.9, even though that was a psalm of David, we believe, no reason to doubt that, and David, in that sense, was referring to himself in Psalm 69, but Christ borrows that very language of David, applies it to himself as Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chooses to speak of Christ here. And then Paul says, almost parenthetically, verse 4, Oh, by the way, when I quote Scripture from the Old Testament and place it as the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus Christ, as I'm doing here, I want to remind you, Roman believers, and of course ourselves, even in the 21st century, even though you're New Covenant Christians, I want to let you know that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction also. That through endurance... Maybe the persecution that you may be experiencing or just the general challenges of the Christian life through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures. And at that point when he wrote it, he was referring to the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament and the encouragement that you gain from it, we, we as Christians might have hope. Now let me ask you a question. When's the last time as you were regularly reading your Bible, especially the Old Testament, you were very hopeful. Hopefully, it happens to you all the time. Because the Old Testament is, for us, even as New Testament Christians, a very hopeful book. And I pray to God that you're reading it. That you're profiting from your study and your reading and your application, even though at times, yes, it's a great challenge to figure out exactly what is the Old Testament telling me and how does it apply to my life, which means you've got to study some of the principles about what to know regarding your Old Testament and how to apply it profitably and hermeneutically, that is, the art of interpretation, in a way that is right and fair and best, 
But oh, when you come across those principles, which by the way, if you don't know all of those principles, and you should, can I give a plug for our ministry training center? Can I give a shameless plug and an advertisement for Dr. Zimmick? He hasn't paid me for this. But I would say, if you want to know those principles, if you want to know how to apply the Old Testament in a way that God is pleased and in a way that you are receiving encouragement and hope through that encouragement, read your Old Testament. Know it. Understand it. Try to determine how it fits in the whole sweep of the Bible. Could I also give a chastisement for any of us who say, well, I don't really understand the Old Testament. It seems so, as Walter Kaiser would say, old. It seems like the Old Testament, and I'm not sure that I even understand it, and so I just sort of leave it to the side. And since I'm in the New Testament age, since I'm a New Covenant believer, I'll just read my New Testament, and it ought to tell me all of the things that I should know or believe about the Old Testament. Don't do that. There are rich, my friends, rich opportunities for you to know God through the Old Testament. And that's why Paul, I think in some sense, is telling these Roman believers what he's telling them here in verse 4. He quotes the Old Testament and then he says, And it was written for your instruction. And through that instruction, with that attendant endurance, that strength that you need to live your Christian life, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, you might have hope. That means that you're going to receive great hope as you read and understand and apply the Old Testament to your life. What a commendation of the Old Testament. Don't ever think there's some kind of radical discontinuity that the Old Testament is not for us today. It is for us today. It is a complete book, the Old and New Covenants, and we ought to see it that way. What a marvelous interlude of Paul. And by the way, if we're not quite sure that maybe this is a reference from Paul to one verse from the Old Testament, do you realize that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of either direct quotations in the New Testament from the Old and or allusions and or references or indications that are coming from the New Testament writer that he has a heart for the Old Testament and he's giving it to us. And if you were to study your Old Testament in such a way that you knew it well, would not your New Testament come alive to you? You see, it's a package deal. In fact, I want to show you a little bit of something just from Psalm 69. So turn back to Psalm 69. Did you know that there are several references in our New Testaments to Psalm 69, just that one psalm? And even specifically regarding the life of Jesus and the fulfillment of prophecies concerning Jesus. For instance, look at Psalm 69, verse 4. As soon as I read this, you're going to readily recognize it if you've read your New Testament, Psalm 69, 4. Those who hate me without cause. There at the end. Where is that found? That's quoted by Jesus in John 15, 25. That very phrase. They, my detractors, they hated me without cause. 
lifted right from Psalm 69. Look at verse 9a. This is familiar to you, I trust. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And that was quoted about Jesus in John 2.17. Cleansing of the temple. The idea that they had turned the temple into a place of merchandise. And Jesus goes in and He cleanses the temple. Why? Because zeal for God's house has eaten Him up. Psalm 69.9b. Of course, that's our text. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Quoted here by Paul about Jesus. Romans 15.3. How about verse 21? For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. All of the Gospels. Talking about Jesus there on the cross, right? Talking about that offering of the the bitter wine. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. All of them making a reference to that. Direct quotations. And then... Psalm 69 is also, even apart from the ministry of Jesus Himself, quoted for our instruction in Acts 1.20 and also Romans 11.9. All of those just from Psalm 69. And if you were to know the Psalms, even just the Psalms, as a favorite of New Testament Christians, when you read your New Testament then, you begin to find all of these quotations, all of these allusions. You can find rich insight as you study your Old Testament. And that's why Paul is making this point in verse 4. The Old Testament, and because we live in the New Testament age, the whole of Scripture for us, we could say it this way, since he says the encouragement of the Scriptures, we could include the whole thing now because that's where we live. It's the whole Old and New Testament. It is given to us. It is written for us for our instruction. The totality of the Word of God. But even if you sliced it down, as in Paul's own day, to the Old Testament, he says that it is given for us on how we are to be instructed to live the Christian life. What a Holy treasure the Old Testament is. What a holy treasure. You'll say, well, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. Well, if you look in the Lord's Day Bulletin and January 1 is beginning, you could do something like the McShane reading plan. There are plans all over the Internet that you can find. Just Google Bible reading plans. By the way, wouldn't Paul have been absolutely beside himself trying to understand the language? Just Google Bible reading plan. What in the world would that have meant to him? The, the Old Testament and your reading of it is a marvelous way to begin the year, my friends. A marvelous way. The McShane reading plan, for instance, allows you to read through the Old Testament all the way through the year. I'm reading right now in Zechariah. How many of you have ever read through Zechariah? few hands are going up. Those are wonderful opportunities. And if you have maybe a devotional guide or someone who's a very good teacher of God's Word who helps us fit it all together, I commend to you Don Carson's two books, Volume 1 and 2, For the Love of God, published by Crossway. He takes us through in those volumes, not, of course, every passage of Scripture, but a whole host of them, including some of these wonderful portions of the Old Testament. And you ought to avail yourself 
of opportunities like that, to know your Old Testament, to know the holistic nature of the Bible, to see how everything fits in. And when you find that, you'll find that 75 plus percent of our Bibles as Christians is the Old Testament. This is a wonderful affirmation from Paul, written for our instruction. In fact, this is a prominent theme within Paul's writings. Look back at chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 4. Notice what Paul says tucked away here in Romans 4 when he's talking about Abraham. Of course, Genesis 15 is being quoted here in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, for instance. Abraham was fully convinced, Paul says, that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith, verse 22, was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote right out of Genesis 15, verse 23. But, Paul says, notice he makes this distinction, but the words, it was counted to him, that verse in Genesis, referring to Abraham, That idea, those words, were not written for his sake alone. What's the next phrase? But for ours also. For us, for Christians, for New Testament people. It's been written for us. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you you grateful that God has an infinite mind that what could be generally related to those people back there or directly related to those people back there can generally be related to us even today by way of secondary application? Wonderful! The Old Testament is for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Notice what Paul says there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7. He's talking about surrendering his rights to, to get his living from the gospel He says, verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? In other words, I have the right to the money. If I get my living from the gospel, I ought to get my pay from the gospel. He says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? In other words, if you're in that work, you ought to get your fruit from that work. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Is this just my opinion? He says, no, does not the law, that's the law of Moses, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. A reference, of course, cited right from the Old Testament. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? In other words, is that all that's being said there? Is that all that's going on there? Verse 10, does he speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. It's for us too. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now Paul says, ultimately, if it's an issue, if it's a big issue, I'm not going to receive money from the gospel. If you think that's what I'm in this business for, I'm not going to do that. But I have a right to do that if I should so choose, even as a new covenant minister of the gospel. Quoting the Old Testament itself, it was written for our sake. Look at the next chapter, chapter 10. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, and that flows, of course, from verses 1 to 8, giving a reference to several things that the children of Israel did, including what they did in the wilderness, being idolaters, 
engaged in sexual immorality, etc., etc. We should not put Christ to the test, he says, verse 9, as some, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then this, verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. They happened to them directly. They, ha- they happened to them literally. They were literally destroyed. They were idolaters. They were grumblers. And he says, just look at what happened to them. And when you're a grumbler, you're going to be spiritually dealt with by the Lord. It happened to them as examples for you. And God wrote it down so that you could read it and then avoid that practice. That's what he's saying. That's why you ought to read your Old Testament, to find out what examples of not to live, of, of ways not to be. And of course, probably the, the most famous in this regard is 2 Timothy chapter 3, because this gets to the, the real heart even of our own salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says about Timothy, because his mother and grandmother had taught him so well, he says, How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, all of the Old Testament writings... And of course now, all Scripture, including the New, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the preacher, and of course those whom he instructs as believers, would be competent, equipped for every good work. Oh, I wish we had the time to exhaust all of the passages which speak to the Christian's richness with regard to God's Word. But at least just the two of them that Paul mentions here in Romans 15. Look at what he says in Romans 15.4. What is the value and the instruction of the Old Testament for us? Notice what he says. Through endurance, that's the first one, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You say, what value is the Old Testament for me? What can I expect to get from it? Nothing but fortification as you endure in the Christian life, that's all, and nothing but encouragement. Anybody interested? Anybody interested in receiving those two things? Have you been discouraged lately? Been discouraged about anything? Have you been just totally discouraged? Read your Old Testament. It'll give you great encouragement. Through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You want to know how to pass the endurance test of the Christian life? Read your Old Testament. Paul says the Old Testament has been given for this very purpose. Do you want hope? Not just the hope of a life in the future with Christ in glory? Do you want hope now? Do you want to to have your faith increased? 
Do you want to endure the challenges of living as a Christian in the 21st century? This is, this is an, an opportunity for us to see what the Old Testament can do for us. Look back at Romans 5. It really gives us this same theme. It's almost as though Paul is returning back to it. Romans 5, verse 3. More than that, more than our rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's interesting. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, and the Holy Spirit has also, in addition to His own very person being given to us, He's inspired the Scriptures so that through the Holy Spirit's witness in the Scripture, we might have endurance and encouragement. Anybody interested? Going through a tough time? Read your Old Testament. And of course the privilege for us reading our New Testaments to see the fulfillment of all of the glories of Jesus Christ and His person and work. You can endure and you can have tremendous encouragement. I need that right now. You need that? Immerse yourself in this book and gain great encouragement. That Greek word, by the way, for encouragement could also be translated consolation. You can be consoled by the Scripture. I love what Psalm 119 says about the Scripture. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Don't run to a friend immediately. Even a good friend. Even a faithful friend. Run first to the Scripture to give you the consolation, the counseling that you need in order to be consoled, encouraged. And of course, as Protestants, we would say that is contained in the 66 books of our Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New 75% of it, Old Testament. Fly, my beloved friends, to the Scripture for your encouragement. Fly to it. And I love the way Paul precisely gives us this sentence. Notice what he says here. Through the encouragement of the Scriptures. For you Greek grammarian buffs. Of the Scriptures. Graphone. That's a genitive of source. And what that means is that the very source for your encouragement is from the Scripture. It's a direct source. I mean, can you imagine a world that has gone utterly mad and has no direction, no purpose, People running into each other with trouble and problems and sin and issues and all of that, even for us as Christians, gets splashed on us at times and we get weary and we get confused and we don't know direction. Guess where to go? The encouragement of the Scriptures, the source of our encouragement. 
And you know what I think he's doing here too? He's giving us a twofold way, not just with the gray areas, that's primarily what he's talking about, but I think overall in the whole of the Christian life, definitely in the gray areas, he's giving us the supreme example of Jesus Christ who did not please himself and he's giving us the supreme witness or source of our encouragement and that's the scripture. Do you want to know the two keys to living the Christian life? Following the example of Jesus Christ and following the supreme source of all or any encouragement and that is the scripture. And the Holy Spirit wonderfully comes alongside you and I to understand the Scripture, to apply the Scripture. And yes, we do have God-given teachers to the body of Christ who can teach us the Scripture. And we have faithful, godly friends who know more of the Scripture and can teach us the Scripture, who, who come alongside us to tell us what the Scripture says, be an encouragement to us. Just this morning, early, 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 as I was thinking through things, I sent someone I love deeply some emails of encouragement, just quoting Scripture. Just want to encourage you. Just want you to know that the Lord can encourage you through the Scripture. This is, this is a wonderful interlude by Paul. Wonderful interlude. I love a guy who goes on rabbit trails. I love it. And then he says, third outline point, and finally this morning, here's the prayer of Paul. All right, now he's coming to the end of this first subsection, and all he has left is verses 7 to 13, which is a recitation of more Old Testament Scripture, which we'll get to next Lord's Day and finish this whole series. No applause, please. He tells us in his prayer what he says in verses 5 and 6, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Do you think that's a coincidence? No such thing. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, you the church, you the Roman believers, ourselves as the Bible Church of Little Rock, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Think about the gray areas now. That's what he's talking about directly. In accord with Christ Jesus, aligned with Christ Jesus, that together, here's the, here's the ultimate, here's the apex, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what his prayer is? Summed up in a word. His prayer is... I know you have differences of opinion. I'm a part of the strong. I know I can eat meat. I know I can drink wine. I know I can do other things. I know I don't have to worship now any longer on the Sabbath day. I know that Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the Sabbath. We rest in Him because He rested from His labors when He died upon that cross. I know I don't have to celebrate certain feast days as the Jews once did. I know I'm a part of the strong, but I don't want to do anything that violates the conscience of the failings of my weak brethren. And so I'm going to give all of that up, and I know that's going to cause some level of consternation in the church. And when it does... I know that there is going to be the real potential for disharmony and disunity and fracture in the fellowship. And so here's what I'm praying, that the strong would bear with the failings of the weak, 
not to please themselves, that we would look to the supreme example of Jesus Christ and that we would also look to the supreme source of all encouragement and endurance, and that is the Scriptures that gives us hope so that the very God of endurance, the one who started it all, the one who's the source of it all, the one who is the source of all encouragement would grant you to live in such harmony that with one another, aligned with the will and purpose and example of Christ Jesus, that you would with one voice glorify God. That's it. Now, I would assume we probably just should close in prayer. The problem with that is that we say amen, and then we walk right out of the fellowship and say, you know, I've really got a problem with so-and-so when they do that. Don't miss what he says. This is a prayer of Paul to grant you to live in such harmony. By the way, that's from that word group, phreneo, to think, to think alike. That doesn't mean to think in uniformity. He can't say that because he's obviously talking about differences of opinion. He's saying to live in such a way in your thinking that as you think with one another that it would be in accord with Christ Jesus with His person and will that together as a corporate body you may with one voice, singular idea, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ even in your differences. How is that possible? How do you do that? How do you have... One voice in the fellowship in the midst of differences of opinion. Well, it it obviously is possible because he's praying that it would happen. And he's not going to pray something that absolutely will not come to pass, at least under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these words. He's telling us that it is possible. And so I'm telling you, it is possible. The question is, are we going to do it? Are we going to submit And if we do, the God of endurance, and it's going to take some level of endurance, right? It's going to take some level of you and I being under the pressure, if we're the strong, to bear with the failings of the weak. And it's going to take, under that pressure, some of the weak needing to mature through their failings. But as we work together in these gray areas of the Christian life, the God of endurance and encouragement will, in fact, grant you to live in such a way that your thinking is, while I don't agree with my brother or sister in that area, or while I'm struggling with so-and-so who assumes themselves to be strong and has the liberty to do such and such, I'm still, regardless of these differences, going to love him, love her, and I want to align myself with the example of Jesus Christ and with the will of Jesus Christ so that together with one voice, one voice, We're going to glorify God together. I don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to have to work on it. We're going to have to pray about it. We're going to have to give up some things. But together with one voice, we're going to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to do that? Is that your prayer? Is that your desire for the Bible Church of Little Rock? Oh, it is my desire. Let's let's bow in prayer. Amidst our differences, amidst the challenges of these gray areas, are we going to be willing to live in such harmony 
even in the midst of our differences. If we are, it'll be because we desire ultimately with one voice, one congregational voice, just like a choir sings with all kinds of voices, but collectively the same song. Even with their differences in tone and inflection and differences in their voices, there can still be harmony. And we ought to thank the Father for giving us Christ as the supreme example of pleasing others rather than Himself. And we ought to thank the Father for giving us the Scripture, the supreme source for any endurance and encouragement we receive. And if we dwell on those things instead of those things over which we differ, we will, with one voice, glorify our God and Father through His Son, our Savior and Lord. Oh, I trust this morning that you know Jesus Christ. And that you want to, even with your differences, together with me and the saints in this place, glorify God. May that be our hearts, Holy Father, because that is the heart of your unique Son. Thank You for His death on the cross as the supreme example of pleasing You and dying for us. May everyone here know that Christ so that we might glorify His Father and ours. For we pray in His name. Amen.